1: Hello, everybody. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared. And I'm sure you have heard the lament about America's universities, or at least many of its most elite universities, that they don't just lean left in the politics of most of their faculties and administration. And that's a claim that has a lot of support behind it, research behind it. But also, and here's where the claim gets a little bit more contentious, that many of these same elite universities are so captured by the left that competing viewpoints are stifled on campus, and so is free speech, and so is debate. Well, here at Intelligence Squared, our ears perk up when we hear the words debate and stifled in the same sentence. If that is going on on campus, we want to look into it. We want to talk about it. We want to test that claim. And so to our topic for this edition of Agree to Disagree, the news of a new university being birthed, in direct response to the perceived intellectual intolerance of American academia. This school has not enrolled any students yet, but it has a name, the University of Austin. And our guests are two of its founders, Pano Canellos and Neil Ferguson. Pano and Neil, thanks so much for joining us on Agree to Disagree.
2: Great to be with you.
1: Happy to be here. Uh, Neil, you are a historian out of the Hoover Institute at Stanford, and Pano Canellos, you are now the president of the new University of Austin, formerly the president of St. John's College. Um, I wanna start with you, Pano. What is, as of today, the University of Austin?
3: The University of Austin is an institution that is uh, being built as we speak. Um, uh, We are building a four-year comprehensive university that will have undergraduate and graduate programs uh, located in the Austin area. And it's a university that's going to be first and foremost and unapologetically committed to open inquiry and civil discourse. The the flag that we've planted um, in terms of the uh, let's say the landscape of higher education is that we feel that we need institutions of higher learning to recommit to the fearless pursuit of truth. Um, I would say that. Um, the dangers at hand in higher education, the Scylla and Charybdis that we're trying to navigate, are on the one hand um, a, a kind of sense that that everything is is relative, that that truth needs to be abandoned, that um, you know that that there's just kind of a black hole out there, and we have to do the best we can, even as educators, to to either ignore the black hole or avoid it. And on the other side of the fence is the sense that um, institutions have committed wholeheartedly to very distinct and orthodox versions of the truth and are interested in implementing those versions rather than interrogating the questions that they raise. So, you know, we're trying to thread that needle. Um, We're trying to thread it by, as I said, committing to um, civil discourse, open debate, uh, free inquiry, freedom of conscience. We feel that that's where universities um, should should
1: locate themselves. Neil, I want to put the same question to you. What is the University of Austin?
2: The University of Austin is a startup. It's an attempt to create a new uh, university offering, as Pano says, uh, undergraduate and graduate programs, uh, because we believe that there is room in the market for an institution that really means it, about academic freedom and free speech as a means to the end of the pursuit of truth. Now, you might say, surely there are too many colleges in the United States and relative to the population of of people coming through the pipeline, we should be closing, not opening colleges. But if one looks at the current state of higher education, there's obviously something wrong. And anybody who's in higher education or has been in the last few years knows it. If if your experience is 10 years or more in the past, you don't know what we're talking about because things have changed relatively swiftly, relatively recently. Heterodox Academy does a regular campus expression survey. 62% of college students in the last survey said that the climate on their campus prevents them from saying things they believe. The Challey Institute for Global Innovation did a survey of students in four-year undergraduate programs earlier this year. 85% of self-described liberal students said they would report a professor to the university if the professor said something that students found offensive. 76% said they'd report another student. And in another study uh, on academic freedom by the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, it was shown that something like three quarters of conservative American and, by the way, British academics and social sciences and humanities said there was a hostile climate for their beliefs in the department. And interestingly, the intolerance of uh, unorthodox political views seems to increase with uh, as the age of academics goes down. So younger academics are especially likely to support notional dismissal campaigns if somebody steps out of line. The Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has a database of issues relating to academic speech showing that with every passing year, there are more cases of academics being sanctioned with investigations or even resignation, uh, suspension of of, uh, of employment and other such sanctions. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that we are all concerned about. And I think everybody should be concerned about it because it's clearly not good if universities are the institutions in America where free speech is most restricted and where academic freedom has ceased to be meaningful. I mean, what's tenure if you can be suspended without pay for two years after investigation into something you said? Now, in that climate, there's clearly a need for a new institution that can just model academic freedom. And I feel passionately that that model is subjective is something that everybody should support because if we succeed, and I think we shall succeed, then we set an example for the more established institutions by reminding them that uh, universities are places for free inquiry and expression, not for the indoctrination of students and the policing of faculty views.
1: So let's 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 talk about since you you, you both live university lives, what's an example of you know, concrete example of some suppressed truth, or uh, actually you're talking about a process, suppressed truth interrogation. The where 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 it's clear you feel that uh, an untruth is being promulgated and being sustained as a result of this dynamic going on on campus.
3: Um, well, I'll, I'll offer an opening bid here, and and then let Neil follow up. I would say. Um, It is held to be true by a great many people that all relations between human beings are ultimately and exclusively relations of power. And and from that assumption, other assumptions branch out. Um, I don't think that's accurate. Or, Or let's put it this way, I don't think it is comprehensively true. I think human relations are vastly more complicated than that. But if you distill it down to that formulation, then you can make other assumptions about um, civil society, about history, about, about politics. So if you start with a mistaken or um, naive assumption, um, you know, there are a trail of errors that can follow from that.
2: I'll give you uh, an example. According to a recent survey by the Legatum Institute in London, 86% of American professors believe that systemic racism is a problem in the United States. That's a much larger proportion than the percentage of the public that believes that, which is just over half, 57%. Now, I think one should be able to have a debate about this, because the term systemic uh, racism itself seems to be one that could be scrutinized. And it would certainly not be difficult to show with survey data from around the world that, in fact, the United States is uh, one of the least racist societies. For example, if one asks people, would they be prepared to have a member of a different race as a neighbor, The percentage uh, that, that says no is very low in the United States relative to most other countries in the world. The problem on American campuses today is that one can't have this debate. And here I want to make a very important distinction that's often forgotten. I have no objection at all to there being a hypothesis that there is systemic racism. And I have no objection at all to studying the works of authors who make this argument Uh, proponents of critical race theory. I hope students at the University of Austin will be able to study uh, the works of, say, Ibram X. Kendi. But the problem is that those who take that position regard the counter-arguments as illegitimate and refuse to engage in a debate, merely questioning the good faith of the other side by saying, if you don't believe in systemic racism, then you must be a racist. This illustrates a really important point. We at the University of Austin are in favor of of ideas, of debate, of the Socratic method. What we are most opposed to is the the methods, the tactics used on many university campuses today to shut down that kind of debate. And this is the key issue. It's not that there is a systematic campaign against truth going on. There's a systematic campaign against debate going on, and that's the critical issue. I'm happy to discuss the proposition that the United States suffers from systemic racism. But let's discuss it. Let's debate it. Let's also hear the counter-argument. But we don't hear the counter-argument because if you make the counter-argument, you're accused of racism, Ibram Kendi's argument is that unless you are, on his side, an anti-racist, you must be a racist. That's not how academic debate should function. And unfortunately, what we see in the American Academy today is a rapid retreat from the academic world that I knew in the 1980s, in which one could argue even the most controversial position without fear— One could, as a student, say something quite deliberately provocative and contrarian, perhaps completely wrong, but have no subsequent sanctions to an atmosphere in which everyone is walking on eggshells for fear that they may say something that will lead them to be, in contemporary parlance, cancelled. That's the issue, that we can't seem to have debates on this issue or take the example of sex and gender there is clearly uh, a distinction between biological uh, sex and ideas of sexuality and gender. But when Kathleen Stock, who's one of our founding faculty fellows, published a book and has made the argument that biological sex, the difference between men and women, is a fundamental uh, reality, she found herself subjected to a campaign of harassment on the Sussex University campus that finally forced her To resign because her life became intolerable. The issue is really about methods and tactics. It's not any ideas we're against. I'm in favor of methods Methods that seem to me to be at fault here.
1: I want to talk a, a little bit about that atmosphere that you're talking about, because it seems to be your argument that the necessity for the University of Austin comes about because of this intolerable atmosphere which is severely limiting and compromising the pursuit of truth. And you mentioned the case of Kathleen Stock in the UK, who, as I understand it, ultimately was advised to get security uh, because of potential threats against her life. That's a a quite extreme case, or maybe you're going to tell me it's not extreme, but let, let me explain it this way. If, in the absence of death threats, in the absence of people throwing rocks through your window, which is extreme and should not happen, and nobody's going to condone that. Why are you not depicting the argumentation, the pressure, even the criticism, as part of the robust give and take of university life in itself? If, in other words, if you're a lone conservative on a campus where people don't like your points of view, make it known that they don't like your points of view, even call you a racist, why not pull on your big boy pants and stay in the fight? and engage in the fight rather than retreat to a, I hate to say, at a safer place? Why not stick around for the fight? Again, I'm talking about not in the situation that Kathleen Stock was in, but just in the situation where where you're made to feel not very welcome. Why not tough it out?
2: Well, this is a naive question with all due respect. The the problem at at, uh, so many universities is not that there is a a debate, albeit one with name-calling. The problem is that academics face not just harassment or abuse, but they face active disciplinary proceedings if they uh, fall foul of not only student opinion, but the sentiment of administrators. Uh, As Sam Abrams showed in uh, an article some uh, time ago for the New York Times, Whereas it's clear that faculty are well to the left relative to the nation as a whole, and more than was the case 40 or even 20 years ago, administrators who've proliferated in numbers are even further to the left. And the difficulty is that a significant number of people in university administrations believe that if uh, a colleague uh, steps over one of the many red lines established by woke uh, theory, then there must be consequences. Peter Bogosian is another founding faculty fellow at the University of Austin, and Peter has been on the receiving end of a quite different uh, kind of campaign from the one that Kathleen Stock encountered, in which he was subjected to investigations, disciplinary proceedings by the administration of his own, University, Portland State. Why? Because he and uh, two other authors had successfully published spoof articles in supposedly serious scholarly journals on uh, gender and other forms of uh, sociological and cultural study. Uh, And so there were actual consequences uh, for Professor Bogosian that ultimately made his position at Portland State intolerable. So one has to recognize that the the pathology in in academia is not just that the debate got ugly. Trust me, I'm from Glasgow. I can handle ugly debate, and I've been taught all my life. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Names will never hurt me. But the other side says, oh, no, that names do hurt me. And if I'm made to feel uncomfortable by something that Professor X says there must be consequences because I must be protected from hate speech. Now, hate speech is just contemporary jargon for blasphemy or or heresy. We we have somehow reverted to a quasi-religious environment in which there are certain beliefs you cannot hold. And a significant proportion of academics and administrators believe that, for example, social justice concerns should always be prioritized, even if it violates academic freedom. 27% of people in the The Legatum Institute survey that I mentioned just a moment ago, 27% of professors in that survey think that social justice should take precedence over academic freedom. In the University of California, you can't even apply for a position if you're not willing to sign a declaration of your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, these kinds of things resemble the kinds of religious tests that used to be required of of academics in the 18th and 19th century.
1: Well, let me let me let me jump to Pano on that. I hear your point on it, and I want to take your point to Pano and ask you, Pano, is 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 it the case that virtually all faculty and perhaps some students who hold conservative views on these campuses uh, campuses have their careers at risk?
3: I think that every conservative faculty member that I've had a conversation with on this subject um, feels the ambient pressure of risk. Um, uh, and they, you know, and you know, so, so yes, I mean, I can't, you know, <laughs> Neil's much better with, with, uh, with surveys than I am, but I would say it is widespread. And just to give you a, a data point, um, within a week of announcing that we were opening a university dedicated to open inquiry and civil discourse, we received over 3,500 inquiries for employment from faculty at other institutions. Well, wow. American faculty or, or global? Uh, uh, there were some international, but predominantly American. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that number in and of itself speaks to, you know, these are people from institutions across the country and in other parts of the world, speaks to the situation they find themselves in. I mean, to imagine searching out a university that, that hasn't even yet begun offering classes and, and, and looking uh, to inquire to work there. Um, I think that tells us what we need to know. I, I, I want to just revert back quickly to the point you made about um, creating a safe space. Um, we expect the University of Boston to be quite a dangerous place in the sense that ideas are really, really meant to be challenged and debated. We just don't think that there should be personal risk that attends being wrong or being heterodox. We think that if you, when, you, when you add personal risk to that kind of intellectual scrum, people inevitably will revert to something that is, is, um, is safer for them. And therefore, we lose out on the opportunity to really test the metal of ideals. We have no interest whatsoever in creating a conservative university. We have zero interest. I mean, we're, we're using sometimes conservative faculty as examples here. But Kathleen Stock and Peter Boghossian are not conservatives. <laughs> they are people of the left, um, as are many other people affiliated with our institution. Our goal is to create, a, you know, an environment that is really ecumenical in nature that that, that welcomes all comers, so long as those comers, um, you know, abide by the rules of civil discourse and allow each other to be um, open, uh, honest, as truthful as we can be, and graceful when we feel that we've been offended.
1: Panel, I, I if we were making the movie of the founding of the University of Austin uh take me back to the first scene how did uh, the group of trustees find each other who are you um what when when literally did those discussions begin where did they begin tell us that story
3: i'll well, say there there were sort of uh overlapping networks of discussions between um the founders of this institution and, and broader um, circles of people going that have been going on for years. People have been talking about new institutions for years. But um, the, the immediate founders of this institution, we had our first meeting uh, in the late spring this year here in Austin. And it was Neil was present there, Barry Weiss, uh, Heather Hying, and Joe Lonsdale, um, and along with Arthur Brooks, who was there to help us uh, think through issues. And we we gathered for uh,
1: and, and, and 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 what was the impetus for the five of you to get together for that meeting? Who called it?
3: We had communicated amongst ourselves that we wanted to have an initial discussion about starting a new university, and so we wanted to get together face to face and and uh, think about the you know see, first of all see if we agreed in principle about what such a university university should stand for. And then think about the practicalities of starting a new university. So that was the kind of first, you know, mini summit that we had, and um, and it was a moment where the the meeting of minds was profound, and the sense of urgency was profound, and um, and so you know we we began launching it from that moment. So really, this has been uh, something of a rocket ship. I mean, this is not. The, the, this project, as it stands, you know, which I do think is the fruit of many other, uh, other um, conceived projects, but this current project um, has has really been taking off over the, you know, during this year, twenty twenty one.
0: Introducing Bluehost Cloud So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: I find it interesting that the, the three of us uh, were students of the humanities. You were an English major, I believe, at Northwestern and studied in, and taught theater earlier in your career. And Neil, of course, an historian. I'm an English major. But um, the university has a heavy emphasis on tech, I understand.
2: Neil? Well, I think uh the distinction between arts and sciences has been a somewhat problematic one for a long, long time, as C.P. Snow uh, criticised it. Before I was born, I come from a family of physicists and um, the black sheep of the family, but I've always uh, studied history with a, a scientific background and, and framework, my most recent book uh, uses quite a lot of scientific research on the history of disasters including pandemics and the one before that imported a good deal of network science so for me this distinction has always been a somewhat meaningless one and a good education an undergraduate education uh, as well as a high school education should be broad it should uh, it should not exclude uh, the science majors from the works of Shakespeare or uh Philosophy or history, and it shouldn't exclude the historians and philosophers from uh, the, the laws of physics. The goal at the University of Austin is to build from a, a small foundation a, a summer school, which will start uh, as a kind of pilot project, a master's program in entrepreneurship and leadership, and that will be our first master's program. And then we'll we'll follow that with a succession. Uh, of other programs, including one on politics and applied history, which is very much up by street, and another on uh, on engineering uh, technology and and mathematics, which I think illustrates our commitment to an educational philosophy that is is broad and, and does not put in silos the scientists on one side and the the Humanities on the other side, and the social scientists in the middle. That's that's, I think, what made uh, for an educational revolution in the in the Renaissance. Uh, it made for tremendous advances in education in the nineteenth century when universities really modernised themselves. And the goal used to be at the great universities of the United States that undergraduates would spend two years studying a broad range of subjects and only concentrate or major in the in the third and fourth year what i found in teaching at, at harvard was that that principle was honored mainly in the breach and that what had occurred was such a proliferation of options such a stupendous number of courses that undergraduates swiftly worked out the way to game the system to make sure that their GPA stayed as, as high as possible. That's the kind of thing that we want to avoid at the University of Austin. We want a genuinely broad undergraduate program to be established, and we want to make it difficult. There should not be soft courses where it's easy to get an A. I'd like to emphasize that the University of Austin will be hard
1: Benno, sp- speaking of, of hard or difficult, uh, again, in your exit interview from uh, St. John's, you, you talked about how this, many of the students who came there were not students who necessarily had fit well into the academic framework of high school and test taking, et cetera, but had a sort of native intelligence and curiosity. And in coming to St. John's, they were given the opportunity to flourish, and they did flourish but they were not the high scorers on the SATs necessarily, or the kids with the 4.0 grade averages. Who are you hoping to attract to the University of Austin? The same sorts of students, a different group of students, or are you you entirely agnostic on that question?
3: I think there's probably significant overlap between the kind of student that would attend St. John's and the student would come to University of Austin. I would say, even though many students who attended St. John's maybe did not have the, some of the traditional markers of academic success, they were aware when matriculating at St. John's that it was an intensely rigorous education, um, which will also be the case at University of Austin. So it's not simply that we're looking for students who maybe didn't quite uh align with, you know, their in some important way with their peers or with the education they've received as uh, K through 12 students. Um, but I think the through line for these students is that they they're they're seeking an education um, that is going to be rigorous, uh comprehensive, that's going to be unsettling in some ways. And we will be looking for for distinct markers of academic achievement when we admit students, because we think that you have to do that, um, to be fair to students, to have a, a strong sense that they will be able to complete a program such as the one that we'll have. Um, but we you're also looking for that kind of, um, you know, this sort of X factor as well. You know, what is, what, what's the, what is propelling the student forward into their, their education? What are they seeking out of an education? I mean, I, I, I've said this in many contexts and at, the purpose of higher education is not employment The purpose of higher education is, is human flourishing, which does include employment, but the highest order of business in higher education is to seek ways to flourish as human beings. Those are the students, the students who have that, that, um, hunger, that, 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 that are on that particular journey, the ones that are seeing their education as something that, um, will provide them the best possible way to be uh, the best possible human beings they can be. And in the course of this, probably pick up many, many skills that will allow them to be employed, but that's not the ultimate end. Those are the students we're looking for.
1: It's interesting. So, so often these days, college the, the value of college education is um, uh, the metric used as return on investment and lifetime career earnings. And you're saying that is not primary for you in setting up the college.
3: I, it's not primary at all, but I will say that my experience has been that students who um, whose whose first uh, inclination, whose priority is something larger than career advancement, often tend to be the ones who do the best in their careers over time anyway, because mm. uh, they just have a sense, a kind of sense of a, 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 a meta presence, meta skills that um, uh, are useful in many different contexts.
1: Yeah. Mm. Uh- Pano, Neil has has already stated that, for example, the intended heterodox nature of this university means that the teachings of a critical race theorist are, are in fact, welcome, as long as it's in the context of being debatable. Um, What about having a... will, Will you welcome Marxist thinkers onto your faculty if they were to want to do that? I'm sure you might question whether they would but would they be welcome if they're academically qualified
2: but it's already happened because i am a marxist oh thank you i didn't know that it's just that i'm on the side of the bourgeoisie but much of marxist <laughs> analysis of capitalist society <laughs> is quite correct yeah. i just happened not to side with the proletariat and it seems like the experiments with proletarian rule did not turn out terribly well so so we don't really have to debate this because we already have a Marxist as one of the founders.
3: I, I would say that uh, I, we would welcome even Orthodox Marxists, to be honest. In fact, probably seek them out. Because again, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, this is how we learn. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, there, I, I don't know any any system sy- systemic approach to thought um, that has been massively influential in our culture that we should dismiss outright. And that's, I think, the same thing with critical race theory. It's been extremely influential. It's something we should take very seriously, interrogate very seriously. Um, there, and there are things, I think, that can be learned from such a process. I don't think it's a matter of refutation or apologetics and proving which side is right and wrong. I think it's a it's a, all of this, as, as Neil points out, Marxism, is distilling things that we can learn from systems of thought that are ultimately um, never going to be comprehensive enough because we're human beings and we're just let me never- Let me
1: bring a, a, a perhaps more challenge, more challenging case into the conversation. There is a professor at Old Dominion University who just in the last few weeks was essentially forced to resign because of their views and I'm, I'm saying there because this professor is uh, trans and uses the pronoun they there. Mm-hmm. They are there. Them. Um, this professor Alan Walker, uh, with with strong credentials, um, degree from Columbia University and elsewhere, and and well published, had been making the case in a book that pedophiles were not universally predators and were seen that way. That there was such a thing as pedophilia without predation, and the professor portrayed the situation of people who are in this category as being uh, under an enormous amount of stress because of their predilections, but also their attempts to resist uh, acting on these things. And to that degree, it was sympathetic. It was in no way an endorsement of the uh, acts of pedophilia, in no way. But it was depicted this way. And the professor came in for, uh, you know, a storm of criticism and under that pressure and in consultation with the administration stepped down. And when we talk about, and by the way, I am in no way endorsing the views of the professor, but it does seem to me that this is a case of exactly the kind of uncomfortable, offensive conversation and thought that we're talking about pursued in an academic setting that challenges mores, but at the same time, the the expulsion of the professor seems to be entirely built around the content of the of the uh, argument that was being made, and I want to know would this professor have room on your faculty? I mean, I I don't
3: know enough other than what you've described me and what I've read in the media, um, glancingly, I don't know enough to give a direct answer to that. Um, what I would say. So an
1: indirect is, answer, yeah.
3: But I, indirectly, what I would say is um, there are boundaries around speech. Um, and there, and and um, the purpose of a university is, in fact, not free speech. Um, it's uh, it's speech that is conducive to learning, right? So, it's a university is not a soapbox. We, you don't you don't offer the university campus simply for people to express their opinions. You offer a university campus for people to bring forward their opinions and allow those opinions. To be queried and and stress test and tested. So, are there opinions that 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 are beyond the pale? Um, there are lines, I think, and I think reverting back to the principle of civil discourse. The civil discourse has three components to it. The first is that you approach questions with intellectual humility. The second component, which is the the, the salient one here, is that you accept unequivocally the the dignity of all human beings. And because we're all rational creatures and that's what allows us to discourse. And the third is that you have a passion for truth. When someone's someone's speech or someone's ideas impinge upon the dignity of other human beings in ways that are purposeful or cruel, uh, intended or not, that's where you have to have serious discussions, and I mean, I'm not saying there's the clearest line there, but you know, that's that's where you start to draw red lines around, and um, and I think in a case like this, that's what should be debated. Like, are those lines crossed?
1: So, so what you would be saying in this case is you you would look at the case to see if those lines are being crossed. You're not, you know, prima facie saying because the, the person is in any way sympathetic to the to the situation. Of pedophiles, that that's a disqualifier in and of itself, and 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 it's that position which cost this professor their job.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, what's in somebody's heart is different from what somebody brings into their classroom and their and their work as a scholar. And I think when somebody's bringing that into their scholarship or bringing that into the classroom, um, things get blurry very quickly, and that's you know. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say about
2: that. I may say that there's been some debate and difference of views amongst our advisors on this particular case. And uh, uh, I think it's uh, a good illustration of the, the challenges that uh, that any institution committed to academic freedom will sooner or later face. My view is that we do not want to have a cancel culture of of the conservatives to match the cancer culture of the the woke, and that uh, we would certainly, I'm sure, and Pana would agree with this, uh, be very reluctant indeed at the University of Austin uh, to uh, dismiss or otherwise penalise a faculty member on the basis that somebody found their research offensive. That seems like a pretty bad basis for. A decision about uh, about an academic career. My own forthcoming book on the the case for eating children will probably get me into a certain amount of trouble with uh, uh, with 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 my critics. But I'm sure Panner will uphold my right to uh, to study the work of uh, of Jonathan Swift and and publish on it freely. This is a a joke
1: it was a, it was not a bad joke, but you did it so dryly we weren't convinced. Um, I, I another another sort of concrete example I want to bring into the conversation because it happens at a lot of universities is situations where professors, particularly law professors, and it's also happening in literature classes, will uh, make direct dire, explicit uh will explicitly vocalize the n word in a context in which they are quoting. Uh, They feel legitimately either the the literature or um, there's a case that um, I found interesting on the the FIRE website of a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, at the Marshall Law School. His name is Jason Kilborn, And he had an exam question in which he was portraying uh, the the complaint of an African-American woman who had been slandered and slurred uh, at work by her employer. And in the question that he wrote describing this situation, he said that he had used a pejorative that began with the letter N and the one that began with the letter B. He did not spell out the words. But in itself, that provoked a response of of disgust and offense on the part of many students who did, as Neil said, report that professor for using even the letters uh, without the fully spelled out words. I just want to know what will be the university's take on this situation that comes up again and again in terms of specific use of language that some people will find um you used the term before beyond the pale uh, well, Pano, Pano, that this would be beyond
2: the pale the full panel answers in his capacity as president uh let me offer the following observation this is much simpler i used to teach at oxford years ago a special subject on the third reich we used a great many primary source uh, documents And I am at a loss to know how one could teach the history of the Third Reich without studying uh, Hitler's speeches, the Nuremberg Laws, Nazi propaganda, all of which are shot through with anti-Semitic slurs. The, The whole notion that one can't teach content that includes offensive language is preposterous. And students don't understand the distinction between using a word as a slur and explaining the way in which a word was used as a slur in a racist uh, regime, then they really need to go back to high school and do some basic training before they go to university. For me, it's absolutely open and shut. These cases are preposterous, and university administrations who capitulate, uh, who yield to this kind of pressure and don't defend their faculty's right to use inappropriate ways offensive language, in context, are utterly failing in their duty. That's my opinion, but Pano will speak in his role as president, probably a great deal more aridically uh, than me.
3: I, I uh, well, I would say that I, I think I agree with Neil saying entirely. I, I would, I guess, what I would add to it is uh, what we seem to have lost is the uh, connection between. Culpability and intentionality <laughs> for something for for something to be offensive, truly offensive, there has to be the intention to offend. Um, that doesn't mean somebody can't be offended secondhand or inadvertently, but the culpability that accrues to that um, is, you know, it, it's not of the same order. If, if, you know, if somebody if somebody is offended and then and then expresses their offense to somebody. The, the recourse should be to apologize or to speak to that person in a way that um, brings greater clarity to both parties, not to discipline and punish. And so we have to return, um, we have to recommit to the notion that to be culpable for some, for some sort of wrong, you have to um, intend to do that wrong. And uh, you know, I, I certainly don't think in, in these cases where somebody is using a slur um, for educational purposes, almost always and intentionally to undermine the inherent problematic nature of that term and to teach what needs to be taught about um, what really is at heart uh, offensive or racist about these terms. You know, to turn that inside out, I mean, I think that 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 seems to me to be illogical.
0: You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. (laughs) Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. I, I want to point out
1: that Intelligence Squared, we've done a number of debates around the topics of university education and including some of what we're talking about now. so I want to refer folks to uh, the debate we did where the resolution was liberals are stifling intellectual diversity on campus. We also took on a debate where the resolution was safe spaces are dangerous. And it's that one that I want to refer to. Um, In that debate, we were not actually debating the thing we're talking about right now, which is what can be said in a classroom or what can't be said in a classroom. We were more talking about the issue of whether universities should offer places where um, students from marginalized communities can go, dormitories, clubs, et cetera, um, to have their own, their own place. Um, but implicit in that argument was that there are things happening in the classroom that can be so offensive to them as to be traumatic. And I want to quote from what the president of uh, Wesleyan University, Michael Roth, said, again, the resolution, our safe space is dangerous. And he was saying no. But then he said, what's dangerous is to make believe that everybody who comes to a university is an equal participant in transactions. And that's not just, just not true when you go to a school that has a history of discrimination and prejudice and where you are a newcomer and where you're trying very hard to belong. And implicit in, in that argument and throughout that debate was the idea that as American universities have made efforts in the last 30 years to appeal to, attract, and enroll a broader range of America's social fabric. That people are coming into that organization, into those institutions, who are inherently more vulnerable to the impact of language. That it's a real thing. That um, people can be traumatized by words. I know that you said earlier, sticks and stones can break my bones. Uh, but words can never hurt me. Uh, I've heard that many times in this conversation. But I'm wondering again to you, Pano, the degree to which, even as you hold the, the the line that you've spelled out here, you are empathetic or sympathetic to the to the experience of these students. Whether you feel any sort of accommodation needs to be made, for example, perhaps signaling. The word by its initial, as opposed to spelling it out, whether any of those accommodations, kind of in the interest of civility, would be called for at the University of Austin?
3: I mean, look again. I the the last course I taught at St. John's was on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is an extremely um, charged text, <laughs> and I and I selected it specifically after the summer of. Uh, you know, of, the, of the murder of George Floyd, um, because I, I I thought that this was a moment where we needed to dive together into some very very complex and profound issues. Um, even though I knew it was going to be challenging, um, uh, it is a book filled not only with um, you know very distressing episodes of racism, but there's sexism, sexual assault. I mean, it's a very challenging work. And we began that class very first day um, by agreeing together to a premise. And I said, look, we are we are here as human beings to learn together. We will best learn together by taking this challenging text in hand and finding ways into it. Sharing our ideas, knowing that as we do this, we are in danger of offending one another with the things that we say. Knowing that we are um, very likely going to find ourselves set on edge by the propositions that somebody makes or language within the text. The only way we can learn together through this is if we begin from a position of grace and forgiveness. That we are all earnestly well intentioned, that we are doing this together for our for the for our common learning and for our individual edification, so that when we do come ag- up against these sharp edges, our impulse is to forgive and to express, express you know, the whatever offense we might feel, but know that the person on the other side. Um, is, is a human being who's capable of mistakes and that as we ourselves are. So I think the way to address what you're talking about, this sort of sense of, um, of, of the need to be inclusive and create an atmosphere of belonging, is to wear our humanity on our sleeves with one another. That to me is the approach to take, not to separate each other, but to, to find the commonality and to express our own vulnerability. I mean, I was the president of a college. I told them I was terrified to read that book with them because <laughs> I didn't because it was un, it was sort of uncharted waters, especially at that charge moment in history. But being able to share that with them enabled us to have, I would say, one of the best classes I've ever taught. I was, was going to ask that. How did that class turn out? It was phenomenal. The students were so mature. It wasn't easy, but it was phenomenal. They were so mature and and the and the response afterwards was that this was what they needed at that vexed moment in time, the ability to be open with each other in this kind of way. Now, you know. So that's that's my response to your question.
1: Yeah, it's just very very, very full response. And and it sounds as though, yeah, in a sense, you are willing to make an account, you're at least willing to acknowledge that this issue is there and to find an accommodation to it. Neil, if you were approached by Jewish students. Who asked you to please euphemize some of the language that was at least okay? You can't euphemize if, if they're reading the text, but if you're speaking about it in the classroom, could you use euphemisms? Would you agree to do that on the, in the interest of the kind of comedy that I think Pano was just saying he would want to build in the classroom?
2: I'm assuming that that, that Pano did not. Uh euphemise the language. No, I'm not saying
1: that he did. I'm asking whether you
2: would. I would refer them to one of my most brilliant students, Abigail Green, uh, who's a professor at Oxford who was an undergraduate in my Third Reich special subject class. I'd suggest that they speak to her and I know what she would say. Can you tell us? She would, I'm absolutely certain, tell any student who made that request that the most important thing one can do as a historian as a student of history, regardless of whether one is Jewish or not, is to stare evil in the face and try to at least attempt to understand why it happened. And one can't possibly do that if one uses soft focus and euphemisms. I never, any time that I taught that course, and I had numerous Jewish students, had anybody make such a suggestion.
1: It's interesting you say that I, I was a foreign correspondent and covered wars, and often, well, always, We had to censor the images that we sent back from the battlefield, basically because of FCC standards, taste standards, community taste standards. And we were not able to show what we actually saw in the battlefield. And I was always very conflicted about that because it was always way worse than it looked on television. And um, I I still to this day have regrets about that. It wasn't in my hands, but I nevertheless have regrets about that.
2: Let me interject as a historian of of war who's written books on both the First and Second World War. I think I very much oppose that kind of sanitization of war. And I I think actually future historians will say that the American press... uh, Bears some responsibility for sanitizing war and, and diminishing, downplaying the nature of its horrors, if one's to explain why the United States persistently involved itself in protracted, unsuccessful wars. So, my style of teaching is perhaps unfashionably uh, no holds barred, but my sense is that what we can do at a university that you can't maybe do on a television network is is show students and encourage them to find out what things are really like. If we can't do that in a university, then we certainly won't be able to do it in our media. And as a result, truth will suffer another setback. War is hell. War is horrific. I understood that as a schoolboy because we studied the poems of Wilfred Owen. Should we sanitize those? Should we Should we take the poetry of the mustard gas attacks and, and delete it in case anybody's traumatized? This is the kind of madness that I'm most passionately opposed to. If I could take it as a schoolboy, if I could contemplate, Dying of uh, the inhalation of mustard gas as a, as a schoolboy, then I think somebody old enough to be at university should be able to understand, study, make sense of, and be revolted by the language of Nazism, or for that matter, the language of, of segregation and slavery. I can't abide this attempt, whether it's in universities or in news organisations, to to present the past through some kind of sepia tinted lens. I think it's absolutely immoral, actually. And we have a moral imperative to pursue truth. We began this conversation by asking what's truth. Well, truth is what actually happens when a bullet passes through the body of a young person. That's part of truth. Truth is what happened, what was said by Hitler in the speech in which he announced that if there were a war, that the Jews be annihilated. That That is part of truth. And an institution of the sort that we are founding, has to be committed to that kind of truth. And if undergraduates find it traumatizing, then then my inclination is to say that's no bad thing, because the trauma that the people suffered who experienced these things at first hand was 10 orders of magnitude greater than the trauma you'll experience in a lecture hall contemplating photographs or film images.
1: In the few minutes we have left, I want to See where the seeds you have scattered uh, have taken root and how they're taken root. Um, Pano, you're the president of the university. Are you drawing a salary now? I am, yes. And are you the only person drawing a salary, or do you have staff? Do you have faculty on the payroll? We
3: have a we have our kind of uh, initial team that's working on setting up the university. So we have a, a, a small band of, of brothers and sisters who are uh, who are helping get the institution launched who are on the payroll. And we have uh, the faculty we have on the payroll right now, what we're calling our founding faculty fellows. So they're um, short-term appointments from, from fellows who we feel exemplify the kind of courage that is needed in higher education today and who are going to be teaching for us in our summer courses and, and offering some other lectures of sorts.
1: Are, are they like you relocating to Austin?
3: Uh, the administrative staff, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. The no star, and some are still in process. Uh, the founding faculty fellows, no. These are temporary appointments, so they, they would not I see. be here. They'll be here to teach in person and to do other things.
1: How, how well funded is this university?
3: Uh, we have uh, a significant amount of backing right now that gives us uh, the runway we need to launch in three years, but we need to. Raise more money to do things like build the buildings on our campus that we're acquiring and and build out the programs. So we're we have a lot of wind in the sails and uh, and the support is uh, has been really 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 heartening.
1: You're, you're applying for nonprofit stack tax status, correct? It's not going to be a for-profit institution. That's not the intention.
3: Oh no, of course, nonprofit. Yes, I mean, nonprofit. We're we're going through all the, the normal channels for accreditation. The Nonprofit university, um, you know, again, an almost exclusively in-person university. Uh, we may have some applications for online education and uh, on the fringes, but um, four-year comprehensive, uh, you know, uh, university like other universities that have existed for centuries.
1: Expensive place to go to school.
3: Are so. We have uh, a strong commitment to rethinking the financial model of higher education to to make sure that higher education is accessible, and so we are planning on having um, a, a rather low tuition point. Um, our goal right now—we'll see how this evolves—and I, I, but our goal right now is to have a tuition half of what you would find at most uh, top flight universities, and to. Um, and to find ways to reduce the delivery uh, cost of education by having the slimmest possible administration and, you know, having a having a kind of campus life that's not, um, uh, let's say, not the cruise ship model that you might find at some other schools.
1: So we're, we're not expecting Olympic swimming pools and beautiful dining halls, that sort of thing.
3: Uh, we are not. What, our motto is to Uh, beauty uh, i'm not giving up on beauty our model is to keep it simple make it beautiful But simplicity can be beautiful
1: and i know that that one of your founders joe lonsdale is um tech entrepreneur who's been very successful in business um and is i'm sure a significant supporter do you have multiple donors at this point
3: we have um many donors at this point multiple multiple um seven-figure-plus donors. And uh-huh. I think even more excitingly, I think at last count we had over 600 um, donors at the at, at the kind of grassroots level, and that was wow. uh, it's, wow. it's actually probably significantly higher. I don't remember the last time I looked at that, So which is even wow. more interesting to me because that's a kind of validation, yeah. you know, along with realizing that there are thousands of faculty out there who who want to teach at this institution, the idea that people out there who just see this budding building institution and will go on our website and give us $50 or $100 or $1,000 um, out of a kind of enthusiasm for the project, to me, that's that's just validating.
1: So that's interesting. You are getting those sort of small donations.
3: We really are. We really are. And they've been coming in since the moment we announced. I mean, they're rather it's rather extraordinary. I mean, it really is. Um, remember, we're an institution that's trying to raise money that has no alumni. <laughs> I mean, not only do we not have, you know, courses, we'd have no alumni, and that's normally where you would turn as a university for your major sources of philanthropy. Our philanthropy is coming from people who believe in the mission of the institution but don't have any personal history with the institution.
1: So to both of you, I assume, given the opportunity If the timing were to work out right, I don't know where you are in your stages of life, but if you were to have college-aged children, you would be quite happy to see them attend the University of Austin, turn down the Stanfords, the Harvards, the Princetons, the Yales, and go to Austin.
2: Well, Malcolm Gladwell said that's exactly what he would do if he were that age. Uh, I have uh, a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. Of older kids in their 20s have already been through university and i think when i look at my young ones i ask myself where where would they get the kind of intellectual experience that i had at oxford in the 1980s which was extraordinarily invigorating incredibly ideologically diverse we had marxists we had liberals we had ultra tories where we were able to speak our minds, no matter how silly the ideas were without disastrous consequences for our careers, where would they go? And there isn't anywhere Uh, and, and we're building it. So I absolutely hope that we can succeed in creating an institution that will be much more attractive than the established institutions, precisely because it will be the most intellectually invigorating atmosphere not only in America, but we should aspire even higher than that in the world. I, I've i sounded somewhat doer in much of our discussion because you've asked questions that have made me feel that way. But actually, I'm enormously excited about this project precisely because it solves the problem that I currently confront, even in educating my younger children now. Even at the stage of junior school, I am encountering the kind of problems of indoctrination that I find most disconcerting in universities. So I'm pretty confident, I don't know if you agree, Pana, but I'm pretty confident that we will attract the adventurous thinkers. We'll attract the students who want to be able to take risk, who don't crave uh, to be wrapped in cotton wool, but want dangerous ideas, who who will crave the stimulus of people with whom they disagree and contemporaries with whom they can disagree. I was such an arguer when I was 18, 19, 20. And I'd have been absolutely crushed if I'd got to Oxford and been told, oh, don't speak your mind, you might get cancelled. Oh, don't say that in class, that will really cost you your grades. I would have been crushed if I'd been told that. So what makes me most excited about the University of Austin is I know it's going to be a magnet for the the brilliant, the edgy, the risk-taking thinkers. And those, of course, are the people who do, in the end, change the world, not because they set out to make lots of money, They don't. They set out to think the most interesting thoughts, to dare to think. That was Immanuel Kant's great imperative, the less famous of his imperatives. Sapere Audi, dare to think. That's the spirit of the University of Austin. And yes, Thomas and Campbell, my youngest children, I I very much hope will turn down Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Princeton, and all the other universities that will make them offers and, and go to the the cutting edge where, where the excitement is always to be found in, in all walks of life.
1: Neil, I'm glad to see that you lifted your mood and I want to thank you for taking part in the conversation and you as well, uh, Panel Canales. Thank you so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Agree to disagree. We'll check back with you in a few years for a progress update. Thanks for being with us.
3: Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit that is generously funded by listeners like you, members of Intelligence Squared, academic institutions, and other partners, and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is our head of editorial. Amy Kraft is our chief of staff and head of production. Shale Mara and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Kim Stremple is our production coordinator. Damon Whittemore is our audio producer. And Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our mission here at Intelligence Squared is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support in that effort. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides, at least both sides, of every issue. I'm John Donvan. Thanks so much for listening.